There was once a man who decided to take his single-handed sailboat out for an afternoon adventure, and he was super excited until, after a few hours of sailing, he found himself in the middle of a violent storm, which, well, it sadly sank his sailboat. Thankfully for him, he was near a deserted island, and and so he he swam his way there and arrived at shore, and, and he found himself there stranded for several years. Then came the day when a group of scientific explorers arrived on the island to conduct some scientific research, and it was then when they discovered this castaway, and and they saw three bamboo structures that he built there on the island. And together they rejoiced at the rescue, and, and they began to ask him about how he had survived, and they wondered about the three structures that he built out of bamboo. In response, the man said, well, that right there, that's, that's my house. That's where I've been surviving in, in, that, in, in that location. And, and that building right there, well, that's, that's my church. That's where I go every Sunday to go worship the, uh, the Lord Jesus and, and pray for, for my rescue. And, and, and then they asked him, well, what about the third structure? What is that? To that, the man said, oh, well, that's the church I used to go to. Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, then it's only a matter of time before you begin to realize that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Even a a castaway who's all alone on a deserted island can't find the perfect church by himself. And while it's true that there are, in fact, some legitimate biblical reasons for why a Christian ought to leave a church, it's also true that there are many, many Christians who leave their church simply because this is so much easier than learning how to bear with the imperfections of others. You know, we go to church, we, we develop relationships, someone steps on our toes, someone offends us, and the next thing you know, it's just kind of like, well, I can't go to church here anymore because, you know, God forbid I start learning how to forgive people. What's even worse is that there are many disgruntled disciples who make it their aim to you know, attempt to justify their departure. They, they, they want to try to prove that they have all the right in the world to leave. And, and, and what do they do? Well, they start making their way around their community, uh, trying to convince others uh, about all of their cri- critiques and complaints. And, and then in the process, they try to take as many people out the door with them. And it's sad to say that many churches have been destroyed by these delusional disciples who have no problem destroying churches with division. Here in our text today, we actually find, uh, we find Luke. He's recounting a, a situation that took place during the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we find in our text today, Jesus face-to-face with a group of religious leaders there in Israel who had no problem causing division with their critical complaints about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that the delusion of division causes dissension. Secondly, we'll learn that the delusion of division causes desolation. Thirdly, and finally this morning, we'll see that the delusion of division causes desertion. With this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Here we find Jesus. He's addressing the accusations of his adversaries who were causing conflict there in the land of Israel. And as you make your way to the 11th chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that, you know, it was back in the beginning of this chapter where Luke was, uh, we find Luke, he's recording the day when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And after recounting the model prayer that Jesus presented to his disciples, Luke then advanced his historical account uh, to the day when this demon-possessed man was brought before the Lord. And it was on that day when these religious leaders of Israel, they began to accuse the Lord Jesus of engaging in witchcraft, and as a result, they were causing division amongst the disciples of Christ. With this as the focus, I'd like to pick up our study of Luke chapter 11. We'll begin reading there at verse 14, where we learn that Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now here in these verses, we learn about the day when a mute man was brought before our Messiah. And while it's true that Luke was a physician who you know, had a, a basic understanding of the way that a body might work, it's also true, though, that he has no problem here attributing the muteness of this man to the demon that had possessed him. He's letting us know that this demon had possessed him and caused him to become mute. Now, this is not to suggest that every mute person is possessed with a demon. If you meet someone who's mute, don't just automatically assume that, oh, it must be demonic possession. That would be incorrect. But this individual, well, he was mute because of this demon. From this, we can see then that these fallen angels that we call demons, they they are able to cause physical issues like muteness. And while it's true that this man's muteness was caused by the demon that possessed him, it's also true that the same demon had affected his ability to see. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew's account of this miracle where we learn that this, uh, the, the, the demon that possessed this man uh, caused him to, to be mute and blind. Uh, not only that, but Matthew also informs us that the Lord Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man could then begin to speak and see. According to Luke, this healing occurred at the moment when Jesus cast the demon out of that man. The the demon was cast out, and all all of a sudden, he was able to see and speak. As a matter of fact, uh, let's consider uh, this miracle, which is found here in Luke chapter 11. I'll direct your attention back to verse 14. Here we learn that Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke. As we take a closer look at Luke's account here, we can see then that the mute man was able to begin speaking as soon as the Lord freed him from this demon that was causing the muteness. And and what this also means is that the healing of this blind and mute man, it corresponds with the exorcism that Jesus performed when he cast the demon out of that man. And according to Luke, those who were there, they were completely amazed by this miracle. Let's consider how Luke put it here in Luke chapter 11. Look with me once again at verse 14. Here Jesus, we learn that Jesus was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. The multitudes marveled. That word marvel was translated from a Greek word, which could also be rendered admiration. It also speaks of amazement. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 14 in this way. Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone... The man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. The crowds were amazed. The multitudes marveled at the miraculous power of our Messiah. And it was that sense of wonder that caused many of them to begin to to, to ask the question, is this the son of David? As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 12 where Matthew presents us with his account of the same situation. And he tells us here that the eyewitnesses of this miracle uh, were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the son of David? Just to be clear, this title, Son of David was actually a reference to a prophetic promise that we find back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's there where we find the prophet Nathan presenting King David with a prophecy about the day when one of his descendants would be empowered to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Therefore, when the multitudes asked if Jesus was the son of David... They weren't just asking, is this a descendant of David? No, no, they were actually asking, is this the promised Messiah? Is this the one that Nathan spoke of? They were wondering if Jesus was the promised Messiah. And in response, well, there were some who were quick to, to dismiss the question by simply accusing Jesus of serving Satan. According to the apostle Matthew, It's in his gospel account where we learn that it was actually a group of Pharisees who declared this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Mark in his gospel account also informs us that there were some scribes from Jerusalem who declared 
he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. From these parallel accounts, we discover here that it was these, uh, this group of religious leaders, it was a group of scribes and a group of Pharisees who were quick to dismiss the inquiries of the Israelites who were wondering if Jesus was the son of David. And in this way, they were causing division with this false accusation. They were falsely accusing Jesus of, of engaging in satanic sorcery. And in this way, they were causing people to turn away from, from our Savior. Now, in order to better understand their accusation, it will help us to know that the term Beelzebub, which is found in all three accounts, seems to be a variation of the Hebrew name Baalzebub, which is found in 2 Kings chapter 1. Now, Baalzebub was uh, literally rendered Lord of the Flies. And this was actually a false god which was worshipped by the Philistines in Ekron. And the chances are Beelzebub was a derogatory variation of that title, Baalzebub. And when you take it into a Texas transliteration, it becomes Beelzebub. Maybe not. But regardless of the etymology of this name, we must not fail to notice that the Lord Jesus seems to be identifying Beelzebub as Satan. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at Luke chapter 11. I want to draw your attention to verse 15 where the religious leaders declare he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Here in this verse, we find Jesus challenging the accusation of those who were attributing his miraculous power to Beelzebub. And as we consider the point that the Lord Jesus here is making, well, it seems clear to me that Beelzebub then must be another name for Satan. What this means then is that the religious leaders of Israel were actually causing division there amongst the Israelites by accusing their Messiah of engaging in satanic sorcery. And in response, Jesus challenged the logic of their argument by asking them, hey, why in the world would Satan empower him, the Messiah? Why would Satan empower Jesus to cast out the demonic servants who were serving Satan? If Jesus really is a servant of Satan, Satan, you know, then why would Satan empower a servant of Satan to cast out the servants of Satan? It doesn't make any sense. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered the words of Christ. Here's how they put it. Any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say, I am empowered by Satan. But if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? Great question. In other words, it wouldn't make sense for Satan to empower Jesus... Uh, with with, with the, the ability to cast out demons, it wouldn't make sense. And the reason why is because this would mean that Satan is sending his servant Jesus to then cast out his servants, the demons. It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would Satan help Jesus to stop the servants of Satan from accomplishing the will of Satan? The accusation was just completely irrational. Wouldn't make sense for Satan to cause division amongst his own servants. And in similar fashion, listen, the same thing is true for the church. We can apply this whole thing to the church by asking, why would God raise up one of his servants, a saint, to then go and cause division amongst his saints in some church? Why would God do that? Why would the Holy Spirit raise up uh, you know, one of his servants to go into a church and cause division amongst his servants? In order to understand why this makes no sense, let's look back at Luke chapter 11, verse 17. It's there in the middle of the verse where Jesus declares every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Now, now notice that Jesus isn't just referring to the kingdom of Satan here. He says every kingdom, any kingdom, any earthly kingdom, any spiritual kingdom, any kingdom that is divided against itself is brought to desolation. 
Well, wouldn't this be true then of the church? If the church is divided against the church, then isn't that going to damage the church? For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word divided found there in verse 17 is translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it refers to any dissension which results in division. More specifically, this is a dissension which results in the division that causes opposition or or a civil war between two parties who ought to be unified. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 17. Again, they put it like this. He knew their thoughts, and so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. In other words, if there's a divisive disciple who's causing dissension within their fellowship of faith, what they're failing to realize is that they're creating conflict within the kingdom of God, which could potentially uh, do damage to their church. And while it's true that there are some who are you know, committed, actually trying to stoke the fires of, of these dissensions within their fellowship of faith, you know, there are some that are just delusional about it. Some are, are actively attempting to destroy a church, but, but there's many disciples who are just delusional and they don't really understand what it is they're doing. They, they don't realize that they're actually causing conflict which will result in the division of dissension. In order to grasp my point, let's consider something that Paul wrote in his letter to the Christians in Corinth. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you make your way to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul actually wrote this letter to the church in Corinth after hearing about the conflict that was being caused by confused Christians who were there at that church. And it's sad to say that the dissension of those divisive disciples was based on nothing more than delusion. For the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word delusion refers to a fallacious belief or even an erroneous idea. And in this specific case, the disciples who were there at the church in Corinth, they had embraced an erroneous idea that you know, there was some sort of pecking order within their church which made some believers better than others and some saints were just second-class citizens. And, and, and this was all based and connected and, and centered around their conversion. There were Christians who had been discipled by Apollos. And they thought they were better than the Christians who had been discipled by Paul. And there were Christians who had been discipled by Paul who were beginning to divide from those who had been discipled by Apollos. And with all that being the case, Paul then, after hearing about all this nonsense, helped them to realize that this was nothing more than a divisive dissension which was being caused by delusional thinking. Let's consider how Paul addressed it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 17... Here Paul writes, now, in giving these instructions, speaking of, you know, the entire book, basically, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Here in these verses, we find Paul challenging the Christians there in Corinth by helping them to realize that those who were causing conflict within the church there in Corinth, that they were actually hurting their fellowship of faith. They weren't joining together for fellowship. They weren't joining together to build one another another up. You know, they they weren't joining together to edify uh, others in their fellowship of faith. No, instead, they were joining together to dominate. They were joining together to divide. They were joining together so that they could try to show, show that they were more spiritual than another. And so Paul says, hey, I've given you these instructions, and as as I've given you these instructions, I'm not praising you because you're joining together for the worse, or for for the worst reasons. Now, I have no doubt that these divisive disciples truly believe that they were promoting the spiritual health of their church. I do. I think that, you know, in their minds, they're thinking that this is what we need to do to have a healthy church. And yet Paul assures them that their division was actually based on delusional doctrines which was causing dissension within the kingdom of Christ's church there in Corinth. 
At the same time, it's also important to notice what Paul said there in verse 19, because there he declares, there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, Paul here is helping the rest of the church there in Corinth to realize that the Lord actually allows delusional dissensions to occur within the church so that the approved leadership of the Lord is given the opportunity to lead. The Lord will allow division to take place in the church so that the approved leadership can come along and show themselves to be the leaders. With that being the case, uh, the, the best thing that I think any of us can do if we see others causing division within our church, if someone pulls us off to the, to the side and wants to let us know that this group over here is less spiritual than that group over there and they want us to take part in their little division, what's the best thing that we can do? Go and inform the leaders of the church of what's going on. Let the leaders of the church understand that, that hey, you know, there's someone who's maybe sowing some seeds of division here. This person is, is trying to spark dissension among the saints and it's going to destroy the church if we allow it to continue. And so that's when the leadership can ta- you know, step in and, and deal with the division. Because listen, the delusion of division that causes dissension within our church will eventually cause desolation. And this brings us to our second point. With this as the focus, if you would, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 11, where we find the Lord Jesus. He's continuing to challenge the religious leaders who are accusing him of being a servant of Satan. And if you would look with me here, beginning in the middle of verse 17, once again, there the Lord Jesus declares, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. The delusional divisions that create dissension within the church will result in desolation. That word desolation was translated from a Greek word which was used of something that is laid to waste. It refers to something that has been ruined. The the root word in the original language was also used of any place that is solitary, lonely, and uninhabited. And in light of this definition, we can see that those who cause delusional divisions within their church are simultaneously creating the conditions by which a church is then destroyed, ruined, and left uninhabited. In order to further understand the point that I'm making, I want to direct direct your attention back to the second half of verse 17. It's there in verse 17 where Jesus declares, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. Now that word falls, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of a building that is ruined by disrepair. Not only that, but the same Greek word was used of those who are removed from a position of authority, as well as those who are cast down from a state of prosperity. And it's sad to say that there are many churches that end up closing their doors, they end up shutting down, simply because there were delusional disciples who decided to start causing causing division, which resulted in dissension, and the dissension then resulted in desolation. It ruined the church. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that the religious leaders of Israel were actually causing the desolation of division there in the land of promise. And if you would look with me again there at Luke chapter 11, I want to begin reading there at verse 18, because here the Lord Jesus declares, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's challenging those scribes. He's challenging those Pharisees about the delusional reason that they were using to reject the miraculous power of our Messiah. They're thinking it was delusional. They thought that Jesus was casting out demons by the Lord of the demons. Those religious leaders were not only convinced that Christ was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, but they were simultaneously encouraging others to reject the promised Messiah because of this fallacious accusation. And in this way, we can see how their delusional rejection of Jesus was actually going to end up causing the desolation of divine judgment. 
In order to prove my point, look with me again there at verse 19 where Jesus declares, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. In other words, the Lord Jesus was warning those religious leaders about the day when they would be judged by, by those who believed. You know, the, those, those who were actually serving the Lord by the power of God, they would end up becoming, becoming judges of these who were causing division. And they were going to be judged for the way that they led the children of Israel to reject the son of David. Now, in order to grasp the way in which their delusional division would result in desolation, I want to consider a prophetic promise that the Lord Jesus presents here in the Gospel of Luke. If you would hold your place here in Luke chapter 11, I'd like you to flip forward a few chapters. If you would, let's turn to Luke chapter 13. As you arrive there in the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to draw your attention to to verse 34. It's there in Luke 13, verse 34, where Jesus declares, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, Your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here in this prophecy, we find the Lord Jesus, he's prophetically pointing to the day when their delusional division would result in a time of national desolation. The house of Israel would be left to them desolate. Why? Well, because they rejected their Messiah. And just as Jesus promised, this dispersion that resulted in desolation, it began there in Israel about 30 years after the cross of Jesus Christ. By 70 AD, the temple was destroyed when the Roman army sacked Jerusalem. And then from the middle of the second century until the middle of the 20th century, the land of Israel was left desolate. Now, when we get to this chapter in a few months, we're going to consider more about the rebirth of Israel, which began back in 1948. Uh, But for now, I simply want to point out that the desolation that Israel experienced for more than 1,800 years was actually caused by the religious leaders who were convincing the children of Israel to crucify their Messiah. Now, we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus was crucified. We can rejoice in knowing that his people rejected him uh, and, and sent him to the cross, and that's where Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And, and so we're, we're glad that they rejected him, but we must not fail to recognize that the world, uh, which is still full of delusional people, uh, are following the footsteps of those religious leaders. They're still you know, challenging people to reject Jesus Christ. And as a result, they're they're leading people away from Jesus, and that's going to result in further desolation, especially when the judgment day comes. The world is still full of delusional people who have no problem causing division as they encourage people to reject Jesus Christ. And it's sad to say that there are even delusional disciples who seem to also have a knack for destroying their fellowship of faith by causing desolation. That being the case, we would do well to embrace the instructions that Paul presented in his letter to the church in Ephesus. If you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. If you would, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. That's what Jesus said. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself falls. And it's sad to say that, you know, this this is true of every church where delusional disciples are allowed to cause division. When a church allows delusional disciples to cause division, well, that church is typically left desolate. As a matter of fact, most churches that suffer from some sort of split are are typically destroyed by the division. According to one expert who's actually spent several years studying church schisms and and the effects of them, 
This is what he says. The church that has split is likely to die. How sad. He went on to explain this desolation of division by declaring this. He says, over the course of a few or many years, the cancer of the split eats away at the health of a church body. And while there are you know, several different reasons for why church splits occur, what it typically boils down to at the most uh, reduced, simplistic uh, understanding is, is an overly critical Christian decided to make their personal agenda a greater priority than helping to maintain the unity of the spirit, which results in the bond of peace. That's usually what it boils down to. Someone decided that they're going to make mountains out of molehills and that this is an agenda that's worthy of causing division in the church. With that being the case, I encourage every Christian to embrace the instructions that Paul presents here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1, where Paul declares, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Ephesus to to learn how to bear with one another in love. And the reason why is because the minute you put several people together in the same place, it's only a matter of time until we're offended by the other person. It's only a matter of time until they step on our toes. It's only a matter of time until they say that that off-colored remark that makes us think, oh, this person. And if we're walking in the flesh, then we will not provide them with the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus wants to provide them with. Not only that, but here Paul is challenging them to realize that every Christian has been called to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, not to come to church with our agenda so that we can begin causing division. Listen, the Christian who is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, they aren't going to waste their time sowing seeds of division, which will result in the desolation of divisiveness. Conversely, the divisive disciple who is sowing seeds of division will begin to create conflict between those who agree with them and those who don't. That's how these church splits start. Seeds of division are planted. They begin to take root and then finally bear fruit within the ranks of the church until the fellowship is so fractured that it begins to destroy the unity of the church. And it's sad to say that the desolation of division typically results in the desertion of the disciples. And this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the delusion of division not only causes dissension within our ranks, and and the delusion of division not only causes desolation through the destruction of the church, but the delusion of division can also uh, cause the desertion of disciples. And as a result, there are many Christians who no longer go to church. And the reason why is because they're still too hurt by some church split that they suffered. With this as the focus, let's make our way back now to Luke chapter 11. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's continuing to challenge those religious leaders who had falsely accused him of being a servant of Satan. And if you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 21. Here the Lord Jesus declares, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping his audience to understand the, the, the point that he's been trying to make. And, and he does this by presenting them with this illustration, which was focused on the conflict between two strong men, one uh, stronger than the other. And as we consider this illustration in light of its surrounding context, it seems to me here that the first strong man who was guarding his own palace, well, this was none other than Beelzebub or Satan. 
And if that's the case, then what this also means is that the, the, sec, the second stronger man, well, this was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the proof of this is found in the fact that uh, you know, Jesus is the one who actually has overcome Satan. And, and, and the proof of that was seen in the fact that he was able to cast the, the, the servants of Satan out. He was able to cast demons out, showing that he's stronger than Satan. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 22. Here again, the Lord Jesus is describing himself by saying, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor which he trusted and divides his spoils. As we take a closer look at this illustration, we can see then that the Lord Jesus is the one who has overcome the strong man. The Lord Jesus is the stronger man who overcame the strong man. And that word overcome was translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are victorious over their enemy. What this means is that Jesus is the stronger man who has defeated the devil and his demons, and now he is victorious over the enemy. Not only that, but listen, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we've actually received the benefits of his victory. If you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you receive the benefits of his victory, which is why Paul describes the born-again believer as being more than conquerors through him who loved us. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers. We are resting in the victory that Jesus secured there on the cross. In order to further grasp the benefits of believing in Jesus Christ, let's take another look there at verse 22 where Jesus again declares, when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Here we see that Jesus is the stronger of the two, and as a result, he's overcome or he's victorious over Satan. And then as a result, Jesus has taken his armor. Or you might say it like this, Jesus disarmed the devil by taking from him all his armor in which he was trusting. The devil has been disarmed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And now he has become the savior who is happy to divide the spoils of this victory with those who trust in him. Notice he divides his spoils there at the end of verse 22. And this is a good, I would say a, a, an incredible aspect of division. The Lord Jesus Christ is ready to provide this victory to those who will stand on his side of this division. And the reason why, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 2, is because Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He even made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus is victorious, and those who stand with Jesus Christ are standing and resting in his victory. And as we continue to consider the illustration that Jesus presented to his critics, we must not fail to realize that he was simultaneously dividing every person, separating every single person into one of two groups. That's right, the Lord Jesus was drawing a line in the proverbial sand. And he did this in order to clearly identify the clear distinction of this division. Because on the one side, there are those who oppose the Lord. And as a result, they're standing with Satan. Now, you might not like hearing that. But it's true. Those who do not embrace Jesus Christ are choosing to stand on the other side of this dividing line, and therefore they stand with Satan, whether they know it or not. Then there are those who trust in Jesus as they step across that line, and, and in this way they stand with our Savior. And so according to Jesus Christ, every person is divided up into one of two groups. You're either standing with Jesus Christ, or you're standing with Satan. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, which side of this dividing line am I standing on? Which side of this dividing, dividing line am I standing on? In order to answer the question, I want to draw your attention back to Luke chapter 11. Look with me there at verse 23. Here Jesus declares, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. 
Think about that for a moment. There is no third option here. There is no middle ground. There is not, there's, no, there's no place here for good people that just aren't Christians. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. And those who aren't with Jesus Christ are actually scattering against him. Those who are, who are on the wrong side of the dividing line, well, they're actually working against the Lord whether they know it or not. Those who are with Jesus, well, we're helping Jesus to gather people into the kingdom. That's what he says. If we, if we turn the statement on its head, he does not gather with me scatters, we can turn that on its head and say, well, those who are with Jesus are then gathering people to Jesus. That word gather? Well, it's used of a fisherman who would cast a net in order to catch a school of fish and gather them into the boat. And in this context, the Lord is referring to the gathering of unbelievers into the kingdom of God. He's, he's referring to evangelistic endeavors by which people are brought into the kingdom of Christ. And with that, I would ask, are you gathering together with Jesus? Are you gathering people to Jesus? Are you leading people to the Lord uh, through evangelistic endeavors? Because that would be a primary uh, proof that you are actually standing on the right side of the dividing line. In contrast to this, the Lord Jesus also informs his audience that those who fail to gather people to him are guilty of scattering people against him. That word scattered, which is found there at the end of verse 23, is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who cause others to flee in every direction. And in this context, the Lord was helping the religious leaders of Israel to realize that they were on the wrong side of this dividing line because they were the ones who were actually scattering people away from their Savior. They were on the wrong side of this division because they were actually driving people away from their Messiah. And in this way, we can see how their delusion was causing people to desert to the wrong side of this dividing line. In similar fashion, there are many religious leaders in the world today who are also leading people away from Jesus Christ. It's, it's not just the scribes and the Pharisees who did this. There, there are many like the scribes and the Pharisees from the first century who are religious leaders And they're offering people a form of godliness while simultaneously denying the power of the gospel message by which sinners can be saved. And while it's true that they present themselves as being these super spiritual religious leaders, it's also true that they are completely confused, delusional in thinking that they're doing the right thing. What they also fail to realize is that they're actually leading people to the wrong side of the dividing line, which will eventually result in everlasting judgment. And listen, this is not only true for religious leaders who are beyond the borders of the Christian faith, but it's also true that there are many leaders inside of the church who are guilty of scattering the sheep with their false doctrines. In order to explain what I mean by this, let's consider the situation that occurred at the church in Antioch. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. And as you make your way to the second chapter of Galatians, I just want to take a moment to point out that there are leaders even within the church who are guilty of scattering the sheep of our Savior. And the reason why is because they themselves have embraced some sort of delusional doctrine by which they are causing division within their church. And as a result, there are disciples who end up deserting as a, you know, because of those doctrines. Uh, let's consider the way this all went down in Galatians uh, chapter 2 here. You would look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here Paul writes, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Here in these verses, we learn about this day when the apostle Peter began to divide himself from the Gentile believers there in Antioch. When he first showed up, he would hang out with the Gentiles, he would eat with the Gentiles. 
There was, there was unity uh, and peace in the church. But then this group of delusional disciples showed up, claiming to have come from James, from Jerusalem, and they began to impose the legalistic restrictions of the dietary law found there in the book of Leviticus. And, and, and you know, uh, they're sitting there looking down on them for, you know, for eating shrimp diablo, you know, and, and, and cooking up the pork chops, and, and they're all upset. And, and so Peter starts backing away from the Gentiles. Rather than taking a stand against this doctrinal error, Peter began to take the wrong side in this division, and then the rest of the Jews there in Antioch began to follow his example. They also began to embrace the delusional doctrines of that group, who I believe came to be known as the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers, they, they, they... believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they just wanted to, they, they wanted you to have faith in Jesus plus the works of, uh, of the law. They were presenting a, a combination of faith and works. And so believe in Jesus, but, but, but you also have to eat, you know, kosher. Believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. And they wanted to present this, this mixture of grace and works. And it began to divide the church. And Peter played a part in this division. Thankfully, Paul was there. Paul was there and he was quick to rebuke the apostle Peter for this hypocrisy. But with that, I'd like to take a moment just to consider a hypothetical situation. Can you imagine what would have happened to that church there in Antioch? if Paul would have allowed the delusional disciples to continue causing division at that church? Can you imagine what would have happened if Paul failed to rebuke Peter for this division? I have no doubt that their delusional division would have split the church in two, thereby scattering the sheep, and Peter, a born-again believer, would have been partially responsible. The chances are this division would have resulted in the desolation of the church, which would have caused the desertion of the Gentile disciples who were failing to line up with all of the legalistic laws of those delusional disciples. And in light of this, it's sad to say that there are many churches who have suffered this sort of split. Many churches where delusional leaders were allowed to cause division, no Paul rose up and shut it down. But rather, delusional leaders just started causing division with debatable doctrines, which ended up scattering the sheep of our good shepherd. And, and these divisive disciples not only caused the destruction of many churches, but they also caused many Christians to walk away from the church altogether. You know, once a Christian goes through a church split and, and, and they, they go through the pain of it all, you know, there's a lot of Christians who just say, you know what, I'm not going to go to another church. I'm not going to go through this again. And so sad that there are so many disciples who are sitting at home even this morning. They've deserted the church after living through a painful church split, which was caused by some delusional leader who needed to be rebuked by a Paul. With that being the case, I just want to consider the counsel that Paul presented to a pastor named Titus. It's in Titus chapter 3, where he declares, Avoid foolish disputes genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Christian, listen. If you find yourself face-to-face with a divisive disciple who is attempting to engage with you in arguments that are nothing more than foolish disputes and, and, and critical contentions and strivings about the laws and these sorts of things. Listen, that's not your cue to leave the church. That's not your cue to desert and, and just try to go do you know, uh, the, the spiritual thing by yourself. No, instead, just reject that divisive disciple who's attempting to divide the church. Because, listen, there's always going to be divisive disciples in the church. Because it's just our nature. It's our nature to make mountains out of molehills. 
It's our nature, nature to, to set aside primary things so that we can make you know, secondary and tertiary issues so important because it makes us feel important. And it's so easy for us to become those critical Christians who are dividing with others when they don't line up with us on, on this specific topic. I can't even tell you how many times I, I, I you know, find myself face-to-face with a, a, a Christian who comes to this church, and, and next thing you know, it's just kind of like they want to take their, their pet you know, topic, their, their secondary you know, non-essential issue, and they want to make sure that I line up with them on this very thing. And if not, then, well, we got we to gotta deal with that. Really? We, we can't just you know, make first things first and, and, and keep primary things in their place? And let all the secondary and tertiary issues just be something that we just agree to disagree about? What is our primary goal? To gather people to Jesus Christ and endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. For the sake of experiencing the peace of God. Can't we just make that the thing that we gather together over? That we're here to worship Jesus. We're here to gather together and and, and celebrate our Savior. So that we can endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can't we just set all the other stuff to the side and just say, you know, we don't have to divide about all of those things. Let's just keep first things first. Christian, it's so important for us to remember the warning that Jesus presented when he declared every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls. This is true of a church. The church that's divided against itself is brought to desolation. The church that's divided against itself will fall. And with that being the case, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that delusional disciples can only damage our church with their divisive agenda. And we would do well to protect our church from those people. You see, the delusion of division could end up causing dissension amongst the believers uh, here in our fellowship of faith. The delusion of division could also cause desolation through the destruction of this church. And if that happens, well, the delusion of division will cause the desertion of disciples as the sheep of our Savior are scattered, some of them maybe to never return to another church. And knowing that the world is still filled with these delusional disciples who love making mountains out of molehills, knowing that there are still those who, who would, would even damage our church just because they want to push their divisive agenda, I encourage every Christian to remember that we've been called to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's just make that our aim. That, that, that we're committed to keeping the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace and with this as the goal. Let's just make sure that we take our agenda and put it off to the side and embrace the Lord's agenda for this church. Let's embrace the Lord's agenda, which is to gather people to him and to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to do this so that we can work together to avoid the delusion of division. Let's pray.